Jesus is, as we mentioned uh, two weeks ago, he is in the last week of his life on earth. And he's in the middle of a series of three parables. All three of them are aimed at the Jewish leadership, some of whom are actually in the audience. Today's text is the second of the three. You might recall we mentioned that this cluster of parables, right, right before the, the passion of our Lord, it comes with increasing intensity and increasing denunciation of the leadership. If you thought the parable of two sons had some bite, you know, remember Jesus said the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you, Jewish leaders. This one deepens the confrontation even further. And we'll look at it under four headings. Four headings. The parable, which is in verses 33 through 39. The parable. Then the leader's response is in verses 40 and 41. And then we have Jesus' scriptural summary. Jesus' scriptural summary, that's in verse 42. And finally, Jesus' application. Jesus' application is at the end of our text in verses 43 and 44. So there's the parable. There's the leader's response. Then Jesus gives a scriptural summary. And then Jesus applies the parable. So the parable itself, parable of the tenants, begins in verse 33. Listen to another parable. The text starts. By now, this ha must have become a rather unpleasant preamble. They must be thinking, oh please, not another parable. Because at this stage of Jesus' ministry, these parables are not designed to win friends. He continues, there was a, a landowner or a master of the house who planted a vineyard. He puts a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a, a watchtower. He rents it to some farmers or some tenants, and he goes on a long journey. And what we have at the outset then is a clear echo to the most famous vineyard parable in Israel's history, namely that parable of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. If you were a Jew in Jesus' time, you knew that text. It was a very, very famous text. So there in Isaiah 5, in language very similar to what Jesus is using here, Isaiah says this, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed a wine vat in it. So well known was this text that it was sung in the synagogues. And Jesus' audience knows the text, and they know that the vineyard image is an image of the nation of Israel. The vineyard is Israel. In Isaiah 5, the prophet expressly says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. No one can be confused about this. 
And the rabbis, it's important to see, the rabbis interpreted the parable of Isaiah 5 as being about the temple leadership. So the vineyard is Israel, but in particular, it's Israel's leaders, the temple leaders. The, the vineyard is Israel, in particular, its leaders. Now, this is crucial because at the beginning of this chapter in Matthew, if you just go back to the beginning of this chapter, we saw this a couple weeks ago, one of the things Jesus does is he cleanses the temple. And so this parable is something of a defense from Jesus of why he had to cleanse the temple. Because this parable is aimed at the temple leadership. So notice in, the, in our text the care the master takes for the vineyard. He plants it. He puts a fence around it to protect it from animals. He digs a wine press. He builds a tower. You could use the tower as a lookout for thieves or as housing for the tenant farmers. This is a picture of the kindness and the provision of the Lord for His chosen people. All of the conditions necessary for fruitfulness are given by the gracious gift, the investment, the kindness of the owner. That's the point of the description of the vineyard. God did everything He could for Israel. And out of His bounty, provided all they needed to be fruitful. So at the end of verse 33, the field is leased to the tenants. The owner goes away on a journey. This does not refer to the time between Jesus' first and second comings. The owner leaves, not his son. It's the owner is the one who leaves, not his son. Nor does it mean that God was absent from Israel. The trip to another country is simply here to set up the confrontation later in the text. And so in verse 34, the harvest time approaches. He sends his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Now this parable is fundamentally about the fruit that God requires. It is about the fruit that God in fact demands. The fruit that is necessary from his covenant people. That's what the parable is about. God provides in His grace and His bounty and His mercy all that we need, all that Israel needs, and when He visits, He expects there to be fruitfulness. At various seasons, the owner would come, take a portion of the crop, the rest would be left to the tenants as their living wage. And so in verse 35, you can see the behavior of the tenants. Again, the tenants stand Clearly here for the leadership in Israel. And what did they do? They took the owner's servants, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. So, it's not only that God has been kind to Israel, providing for the vineyard, but the text is about His patience, His fidelity, His faithfulness in the midst of their 
perversity and our perversity. He sends prophets to his wayward people. Prophet after prophet. And this patience of God, this love which refused to let Israel stray, this negation of Israel's no. Israel says no to God, and God says no to Israel's no. And thank God that God says no to your no, or nobody would be sitting here today. Israel says no, and God says no. He doesn't let them go. And this patience, this kindness of God, it stretches across millennia. He sends the prophets. Luke's version of the parable says the prophets were sent away empty-handed. They didn't obtain the fruit that was God's due from his vineyard. Notice verse 36. Then he sent other servants. It's plural here. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet more than the first time, the text says. A whole slew of prophets. And so the parable is a condensed history of the forbearance and love of God for Israel. Back when I was a, a, a very new Christian many years ago, I, I remember being at my aunt's house in Jersey. She was an unbeliever, and the conversation uh, turned to my new faith. There were a lot of relatives there. And uh, she said to me, well, when I read the Gospels, it seems to me that Jesus is always angry. He's always pronouncing some dreadful judgment on someone. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, she's actually reading the Gospels. She's actually confronting the real Jesus, not some plastic caricature. Yes, he is. He does that a lot. It was astounding to me that she noted this. And that people in the church don't notice it at all. She's since become a Christian. But what she was missing when she read a parable such as this one, because this parable ends up pretty nasty. What she was missing was the millennia-long patience of God. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene... This long and painful engagement of God with Israel is at the breaking point. That's why the Gospels are so white hot with intensity. It's not like Jesus just drops down and says to Israel, Hey, um, what do you guys think? Um, I'm the Messiah. You accept me or not? Right? The God who Jesus is has been dealing with Israel's rebellion for 3,000 years. So this is the culmination of that. In fact, Jesus' appearance in the flesh provokes the very final cataclysm with sinful Israel. That's what the incarnation does. It's a time of crisis. And so Jesus' harshness, if we must call it that, has to be seen in this light. The light of the love and patience of God. So the response in the text to this second, larger group of servants sent by the Master is the same as the first. Look at the end of verse 36. They treated them the same way. Now, to get a handle on how serious this crisis is, we should recall that right after this, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is going to say this. 
all the righteous blood shed on earth from Abel to Zechariah. That's Jesus' way of saying from A to Z. From Abel to Zechariah will come upon this generation. I mean, it's hard to say anything more dreadful than that to a people. All the righteous blood shed on earth from Abel to Zechariah is about to come on you. So Jesus' ministry is a new beginning in many ways, but it is the end for Israel and its current configuration. So look at verse 37. There we're told, finally, finally after the long succession of prophets, even after John the Baptist, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And the tenants see the Son and they say to each other, that, this is the heir. Come, let us kill Him and take His inheritance. They seem to have thought mistakenly that the Master has died. In any case, they take Him, they take the Son, they throw Him out of the vineyard, they kill Him. And so after a long and criminal history, they add this crime to their resume. This is a clear reference here to the impending death of Jesus at the hands of the religious authorities. That's the parable. Let's see the leader's response. Verse 40, Jesus asked them, When the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? Now this is again the coming of the owner, not the coming of Jesus. This does not refer to the end of the age. But it does refer to a time of reckoning. Again, the leaders would know. They'd know from Isaiah's parable of the vineyard that the Lord expected fruit. But he didn't find it. Back in Isaiah 5, it says the Lord looked for the vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but there was an outcry. So with this background, the leaders say in verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They believe that the punishment will fit the crime. Of course, they're unwittingly you know, indicting themselves. They say he's going to rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop. The leaders are remarkably inventive when confronted with the Word of God. They, They probably are thinking, they know the vineyard's Israel, but the tenants, they're probably thinking the tenants must be the Romans. Or maybe the tenants are the unrighteous, you know, the sinners in Israel, who hinder the work of God. We all have great capacity to do this, right? They cannot see themselves in this parable. No matter how plain and obvious it is to us from this distance, they cannot see themselves in this parable. But we do the same thing. We hold the mirror of the Word of God up to ourselves and we walk away and we forget what we saw. 
texts are always about some other person. This is about to change with Jesus' summary, his scriptural summary. In verse 42, he says, he asked him a question. Have you never read in the scriptures? And then he cites Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now Jesus knows, in spite of the fact that he poses it as a question, he knows they know this citation as well from Psalm 118. These are not obscure texts. This is the time of the Passover. And Jews from all around the world had converged in Jerusalem for the celebration. And this psalm, Psalm 118, was one of the psalms of ascent that they would sing as they ascended to Jerusalem. So they had just sung this text. So what's Jesus doing? He's taking Psalm 118, he's radically applying it to himself. He's saying, I am the stone which you, the builders, the temple authorities, have rejected. I'm the, the, the new Israel. I'm the Messiah. This first line, the stone that the builders rejected, again, that refers to Jesus' imminent death. Something which was lost was this, that rejection of Jesus, his death. Far from being a sign which says he's not the Messiah, is a sign that he is the Messiah. But Jesus is not only taking Psalm 118 and saying, I'm the rejected stone. He moves beyond the parable in saying that this rejected stone becomes the cornerstone, becomes the capstone. This means we have not only rejection, but we have vindication and exaltation. The rejected stone becomes the crucial cornerstone in the new temple of God, which is the body of the risen Christ. Remember Jesus' saying of His physical body, to the Jewish leaders, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He is the new temple. And in him, the temple is going to be reconstructed. And so Jesus here predicts not only his death, he predicts his resurrection. All of this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes, Psalm 118 says. And finally, we have Jesus' rather ruthless application. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, of course, Jesus, this is a harsh statement, but Jesus is just restating what they themselves said. Right? They said, the wretches will come to a wretched end and the vineyard will be rented out to others. That's what should happen. The kingdom will be taken from you. Meaning from the leaders and by implication from that generation and those, those who follow the blind leaders. And it's going to be given to a people producing its fruit. So the people, the new tenants, 
Here is a reference to the church. Israel's going to be reconfigured. The kingdom's going to be taken and given to the church. Now, it's crucial here to see that this is not, it is not a judgment against all Jews for all time. Right? This is a statement about the current leadership in Israel and those who tragically follow them. We should be careful not to overread texts like this. The church has had a tendency to do this in her history. Notice something very important here. The vineyard, the vineyard is not destroyed. The vineyard's not destroyed. God is not a dispensationalist. He doesn't have two vineyards. He's got one vineyard. The current tenants are evicted and a new nation takes over the same vineyard. Unfaithful branches of Israelites are cut out and we're grafted in. But the olive tree, the vineyard remains. And finally, in verse 44, Jesus returns to the stone image. He's the rejected the stone the builders rejected. He's become the capstone. And he says, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Christ will cause many to stumble and fall. He becomes a stumbling block to all who reject him, especially to that generation of Israel. But he goes further. He says, but he on whom this stone falls will be crushed. Both of these images here, stumbling over the stone or having the stone fall on you, they're both negative. Occasionally, commentators try and say one is a good thing and one is a bad thing, but that's not true. Who likes to trip over stones? Nobody. And who likes stones to fall on them? Nobody. They're both negative. You don't want either one to happen to you. But the second one, the idea of a stone falling on you, Jesus is again echoing a famous text, Daniel chapter 2. And there a stone cut without hands crushes the Roman Empire. And it grows into a mighty mountain and it fills the earth. In the time of the Roman Empire, that stone comes. And so this is a, a prediction of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And the eventual triumph of the church over the Roman Empire. All of that is packed into this stone reference from Jesus because Jesus is pulling forward the Daniel chapter 2. And so he says the kingdom, the vineyard of the Lord with its new tenants, the new nation of the body of Christ will bear fruit and will fill the earth. The church will bear fruit and it will fill the earth. So let me conclude. The main central point we should recognize, especially those of us who are in leadership positions, is that the parable is a call to fruitfulness. The master expects fruit from the vineyard. God has done everything in his kindness to make us fruitful. And when he doesn't get it from the Jewish leaders, he removes them. And he gives the vineyard to a new nation. But remember, and we should remember this with fear and sobriety, what Paul says to us in Romans 11. He says they, the Jews, were cut off 
because of their unbelief. And God is able to graft them back in. He says, but we Gentiles, we stand by faith. And we should not be arrogant. Rather, we should fear. It would be a grievous sin for us to think, well, too bad for Israel. Tough parable for those guys. Paul says, if God did not spare them, the natural branches, don't think he'll spare you. We cannot remain in the kingdom barren and fruitless. We have to abide in Christ. That means the text is a call to abide in the vine, to be fitted into his temple, to let his word abide in us so that we may bear fruit and prove to be his disciples, faithful laborers in the vineyard of the Lord. Amen.